This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Cavalry Audio. You're listening to episode 11. What happened to the Dermans? The case of the grisly murders of Shirley and Russell Dermond in 2014 is both tragic and mysterious. According to Putnam County Sheriff Howard Sills, even after over eight years, they don't have any witnesses, suspects, a motive, identified foreign DNA or fingerprints, and he's still not even 100% sure where the murders actually took place. This case has become the ultimate whodunit. Something I was hoping to speak with Howard Sills about. Putnam County Sheriff's Office. Yes, hi. May I speak with uh, Sheriff Howard Sills, please? Um, I don't think he's in right now. I can go ahead and transfer you over to his line. If he's not in, you can leave him a message, okay? Okay, great. Thanks. This is Sheriff Howard Seals. I'm either away from my desk or I'm unable to answer my phone at this time. If you please leave your name and number, I promise to call you back just as soon as possible. Thank you. Hey, Sheriff Sills, this is Carolyn Osorio from the podcast, The Murder Chronicles. And I can, I'm sure you can appreciate that I really want to speak with you regarding the Dermond case. This is the second or third time I've tried to reach out with you or reach out to you um, over the phone and through email. Um, if you could give me a call, I'd really appreciate having the opportunity to interview you for the podcast. I've interviewed Cheryl McCollum, and um, I'm just hoping to be able to share your insight into this investigation. And hopefully, um, as you've said in interviews previously, you know, bring attention to the case, which I think my audience would be able to do, hopefully. Anyway, I know you're busy, and my name is Carolyn Osorio. Thanks. That's me leaving another message to speak with Sheriff Howard Sills. He didn't call back that day. In that voicemail to Sheriff Sills, I mentioned speaking with Cheryl Mack McCollum. Cheryl McCollum. I'm a crime scene investigator for a Metro Atlanta Police Department, and I'm the director of the Cold Case Investigative Research Institute. Now, Mack is always looking to lend a hand with a cold case, and she's offered her expertise and contacts to Sheriff Sills on this investigation. And how I got involved in this case is um, I attempted to help Sheriff Seals several years ago with some things that I thought maybe he wasn't privy to the people or the new information or techniques. And then Karen Greer, who I work with on CSI Atlanta, said, hey, let's cover the case and let's go out there and put boots on the ground and see if we can actually connect him with some of these people that I think could help him. So... That's what we did. Here's Mac in a feature story with Karen Greer from WSB-TV. Crime scene investigator Show Mac McCollum, who's working exclusively with Channel 2 Action News, is also offering to help Sheriff Sills get some new DNA tests done on the items he recovered. Have you tested the towels for the DNA of the person that rolled All it? of that was sent to the, to the Georgia Crime Lab, and uh, we asked for that, and I hope that was... Howard Sills has been the sheriff in Putnam County, Georgia, since 1996, and he's also been leading the Durbin investigation for the last eight years. 
According to Sheriff Sills' bio on social media, he's got the expertise and the grit to solve this case. Quote, our sheriff is well known throughout Georgia for his no-nonsense and leave-no-stone-unturned approach to criminal investigations and his extraordinary knowledge of law and criminal procedure. He is further recognized as an expert in homicide investigation and death penalty prosecutions, end quote. And yet publicly, Sheriff Sills has referred to this case as his albatross. Does this one keep you up at night sometimes? Oh, obviously, it's the... This is my albatross. It, it's, it, it's, it, it, uh, I find myself sitting in the seat I sit in today. It's not, it's, no, it's not a pleasure for me to be able to sit here and tell you that I've had this terrible double uh, homicide and I've not been able to solve it. It's not pleasurable, but I hope that these types of interviews will eventually get somebody to give us a call because somebody knows. I've said that so many times. Somebody knows, and whoever did this will do anything from a standpoint of murder. And here's the great thing about persistence. Sometimes it just pays off. Hello? Uh, Carol, this is uh, Sheriff Howard Sills of Putnam County, Georgia. Oh my gosh, I'm so happy to hear from you. I'm sorry, I, didn't, I, I couldn't understand your last name. I apologize. It's okay. It's Osorio. And if you've called me before, I apologize because I, I didn't get the message. And today, if you sent me an email today, I didn't get it because we have a catastrophic email problem here today. That's why I'm still here. <laughs> well, I'm so grateful that you're calling. Do you have, um, can we do a really quick interview? I can just record us right now. Oh, sure. Yes, ma'am. Whatever you want to do. Oh, my gosh. I that's so great. That you've been trying to get in touch with me and been able to. It sounds like this case is a real albatross across your neck. I actually looked up that saying because I hadn't, I hadn't heard that for a while. And uh, it's like, you know, you think about it every single day, right? Yeah, uh, I do. <laughs> I, I'm surrounded with it every single day. So many unanswered questions, the most basic of which, why would anyone want to murder two octogenarians? That's what the Derman family and the Putnam County Sheriff's Office would like your help with. But maybe you know something about the Derman murders. This would bother me quite candidly, the media attention that this case has gotten, but I, I actually welcome it uh, because I keep hoping it's going <laughs> to be what solves the case. Russell Derman was a World War II veteran. After the war, he married his sweetheart, Shirley, in 1950. They were both New Jersey natives, and they would go on to have four children, a daughter and three sons. After Russell retired as a successful clock manufacturing executive, the Dermans moved to Atlanta, Georgia. Here, Russell and Shirley owned and operated several Hardee's fast food restaurants. The couple would ultimately retire in 1994. The next phase of their life was spent dreaming about and building their retirement home in the city of Eatonton, Georgia, roughly 85 miles away from Atlanta. Okay, so the Dermans' home and their lifestyle is really important in this investigation. So I want to set it up properly, because the Dermans weren't your average retirees. Their home was in a resort community called Reynolds Lake Oconee. Now, Reynolds Lake Oconee has over 1,500 multi-million dollar residences, six golf courses, 
surrounded by the beautiful Oconee Forest. This wooded area was cut with 21 miles of walking and biking trails, and Lake Oconee itself is the centerpiece for these luxurious waterfront homes. The Dermans lived in the Great Water subdivision, which features a Ritz-Carlton hotel and a Jack Nicholas-designed golf course, both of which were within walking distance of the Dermans' home. Here's Mac. They were, you know, extremely comfortable. Um, they were not ostentatious with their money, but you knew just from the home and the location and the community that they were well off. I mean, they were able to do whatever they wanted to do when they wanted to do it. The Great Water subdivision was a gated community with security. The Dermans' 3,200-square-foot home was nicely tucked into a cul-de-sac. Basically, it was a serene pocket of wooded bliss. The Dermans' backyard was a private cove on Lake Oconee. In a neighborhood of multi-million dollar homes, the Dermans wasn't the most opulent, but it definitely was one of the most private properties on the lake. By 2014, the Dermans had lived here for over a decade. It's a gated community filled with homes that are four, five, six, seven bedroom homes that are all landscaped. They're right on Lake Oconee. They're beautiful. I mean, I mean, if somebody said, hey, I'm going to give you a home on Lake Oconee. Honey, I wouldn't even have to look at it first. I'll take any of them. <laughs> <laughs> They're just, you know, extremely nice. So it's probably one of the richest neighborhoods in Georgia. Wow. A lot of homes are second homes. They're not even full-time folks living in them. It's a vacation home. It's a, you know, we come when we can type of thing. So, yeah, you're talking about a lot of money. Um, and you're also talking about a tight-knit group. They, you know, kind of all know each other. When you live on a lake like that, you essentially don't have a backyard. So what you see are other homes. So everybody knows everybody's boat. They know, you know, almost like a light system. <clears throat> so, for example, you probably know the person across the way and you know when they have company or not. You know when they're throwing a party or not. You can tell by the lights they're on. I think it's safe to say that life had been better than good for the Dermans. They'd been married for 68 years, had four children and nine grandchildren, and Russell, who was 88, and Shirley, who was 87, were still enjoying an incredibly comfortable lifestyle in 2014. The town where the Dermans shopped was conveniently located nearby, and though the Dermans had slowed down a bit, being in their late 80s, they were still out and about in their community. It's not Mayberry. You know, people <laughs> might understand that, but it certainly, I mean, it ain't Atlanta. So if you don't know, Mayberry was the idealized small town in the popular 1960s TV show Andy Griffin, which featured a good-hearted sheriff and his faithful but hokey sidekick. And even though it was 2014, it sounds like the Germans lived their lives very much in keeping with the wholesomeness and mindset of the show. They were church-going people. Russell had at one time been an avid golfer, and Shirley enjoyed playing a card game called Bridge with a circle of friends. It sounds like the Dermans were the kind of people who were very friendly and cordial, but they liked things done just so, with established routines, etiquette, and a quiet sensibility. It's clear that these would be the last people one would ever expect to be murdered. Just to bring that sentiment home, I'm going to share with you a clip from an interview with the Dermans' son, Brad. 
He's speaking with a reporter from Eleven Alive. And even though this interview is being conducted years after his parents have been murdered, you can hear the shame in his voice because he's coming forward in this really public way. And it's hard to hear because he knows, even in death, that he's disappointing his parents. They're very private people. Russell and Shirley Derman never wanted to be in the spotlight. It's one reason they built their retirement home tucked in a cul-de-sac nestled in a cove on Lake Oconee. That particular spot, that cove where they had, was, was really private. And it's out of respect for that privacy, their youngest son Brad struggled with the idea of talking to me. He probably would not, well, probably not approve of, of, of us even doing this today. What a burden to bear. The grief, but also wanting to find justice for your parents. To know what happened to them. And at the same time, feeling guilty for coming forward. It's the horror that they must have gone through um, from the time it, you know, it began and, and was finished. That, that, that's, that's what's so, so difficult to, to overcome. That's why the family is now appealing to the public, hoping someone got cocky or said too much one night over drinks. We may not like how long it may take, but it will be solved. We'll be back after a quick break. So let's get to the events leading up to the murders. A timeline for both Russell and Shirley's movements have been established. The Putnam County Sheriff's Office released video footage of Russell Dermond strolling his shopping cart down the aisles of a supermarket near his home on May 1st, 2014. In the video, you can see Russell picking up a prescription at the pharmacy window, then pushing his cart to the checkout lane, where he bought cucumbers and bread. Nothing out of the ordinary. Sheriff Sills and I discussed the release of that video. And I saw that video that you released of him at the store, and I was like thinking, well, I don't know what an 88-year-old 80, is supposed to look like these days, but he seemed really spry. Well, most of their friends did not know they were as old as they were. Most of their friends were eight or ten years younger than they were and did not realize that they were as old as they were until this happened. That, that's a common thing people told us. That, that we had no idea that they were that old. A day later, on May 2nd, 2014, Russell Derman was seen walking the golf course near his home. This walk appears to be the last time he was seen in public. The last time Shirley was seen publicly was a few days before at her weekly card game at the Bridge Club. Again, nothing in Shirley's demeanor raised any alarm bells. The Durhams were very social people. I mean, they went to church, they went to parties, they visited. Um, he golfed until the last couple of years of his life. She played bridge. She played bridge a few days before this happened. And then he was seen walking the golf course on May 2nd. The first indication that something was off was when Russell and Shirley were a no-show for a Kentucky Derby party on Saturday, May 3rd. The couple had RSVP'd. Not showing up when they made a social commitment was not like the Dermans. May 3rd, they tell everybody, yes, we're coming to the party. That sounds like fun. May 4th, they don't show up for the party. After three days of radio silence, the neighbors began to worry. First, the Dermans were a no-show. Then they didn't call to apologize or explain why they weren't at the party. And it was odd, too. Because in the days after the party, when the neighbors drove by, there didn't seem to be any sign of activity at their home. Finally, on Tuesday, May 6th, the neighbors couldn't take it anymore. So they drove over to the Dermans' home to physically check in on them. 
What if they were suffering some kind of debilitating illness that had rendered them both incapable of answering the phone? There was no answer on the phone. Well, this goes on for two days, and then they ask other people, have you seen, you know, Russell and Shirley? No, we hadn't seen them. You know, they didn't come to the party, and we hadn't seen them since. So the couple that threw the party said, well, we're going to ride over there, and we're just going to check on them. The neighbors arrive at the Germans' home at around 10 a.m. Of course, they knocked. No response. The front door was unlocked, so they stepped inside. They called out, hello? There's no sign of either Shirley or Russell. And there's nothing amiss. Shirley ran a tight ship. When they got there, the back door was unlocked. So they go in the back door, they holler for them, nobody answers. So they check every room. I mean, it's a four-bedroom house with a living room and a kitchen and bathrooms. They cannot find them anywhere. Shirley was a immaculate housekeeper. Nothing, and I'm talking about nothing, was out of place. So they were like, this is so weird. Even though everything seemed in order... Except, of course, the absence of Shirley and Russell. Something just didn't feel right in the pit of their stomachs. So the husband does another quick run through the house. Maybe he missed some sign, something to explain where these two had gone. Perhaps there was some spilled medication on the floor in the bathroom that might make sense of it all. An unexpected trip to the ER. Or maybe a suitcase. An unexpected trip out of town. Again, it was spotless. Nothing out of place. After a second sweep through, the neighbor thinks the garage. The neighbor opened the garage door, went down the steps inside. Everything seemed in order. But curious, why were both of their vehicles here if they weren't home? The neighbor continued down the length between the Lexus SUV and the Lincoln Town Car. How could he prepare himself for the shock? A headless body found slumped behind one of the vehicles on the garage floor. It was their friend. Russell, lying in a small pool of blood. Well, then they go into the garage. Behind their two cars is where they found Russell's body. And his head was missing. The neighbor frantically dials 911. Yes, I have an emergency. Okay. I think I have somebody dead. Okay, what's the address, ma'am? Uh, sure, what's the address here? I don't know. Uh, we're in Great Water. Okay, and who is it? Uh, the Dermans. Okay, and uh, you're a neighbor or something? Yes, yes, I just came to check on them. They've been missing for about four days. Where, uh, are they in the house? Yes, yes. Uh, what's your name, ma'am? I'm Peggy Wynn. Okay. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh. Oh. Okay. They're, they're both dead, Ms. Wynn? Uh, did you find both of them? No. No. Okay. No, it's just one. Okay. I don't know where the other one is. Okay. All right, I'll get you a deputy in the ambulance over there just in case, okay? Yes, please. Okay. Please. All right. Thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. According to Sheriff Sills, they believe Russell was murdered Friday night or Saturday morning. Well, this, we think this occurred on a Saturday, and we didn't get the call until Tuesday. So you're talking about the day that he he was last seen walking, Mr. Dermond was last oh, seen? Oh, no, ma'am, not that day, no. We, because of some emails and other things, we know this pretty much happened on you know, Saturday morning, and uh, we didn't get a call. 
call. It wasn't reported to us until the following Tuesday. And, uh, you know, you know, people talk about the 48 hours, but the Howard Seals saying is, boys, we got to get something on this before the blood gets dry. <laughs> and uh, the blood was quite dry by the time we got the call. Yeah. The Kentucky Derby party on that Saturday? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And they, and they didn't show up. Right. And, and we know about newspaper deliveries and things like that. So, so we know this had to happen Friday night or Saturday. I want to give you a warning. This is going to be a very graphic description, so please be advised. If they took the head post-mortem, would it bleed? And dan- you know, with mm-hmm. all the- Yeah. It's like, it's like taking a cap off a Coca-Cola bottle and laying the bottle down. Yeah. You're going to bleed out. No even, question. Even if you're already dead. It, it's gravity because there's nothing to keep the blood in. So uh, it's not the heart and it's that you have no head. So gravity is just going to pour out a ton of blood. Okay. And so that's what those damn towels were all about was so that it wouldn't seep out into the driveway yeah. so people could see. They, yeah. They rolled the towels up and made a dam like a barrier. Mm. Yeah. But where was Shirley? I'm sure you can imagine this was a shocking crime scene. If the Derman home was even where Russell had been murdered. The idea that Russell's body had been brought back to the home after he'd been murdered somewhere else hadn't been ruled out. One thing that could be determined was time of death. Investigators believed that Russell's body had been in the garage for four days before being discovered by his neighbors. But why had the killer or killers taken the time to roll up towels around the body to mitigate blood from seeping out from underneath the garage door. And where was Shirley? So Shirley had last been seen playing bridge a few days before Russell's walk by the golf course and just one day before the May 3rd Kentucky Derby party. From the beginning, there were so many questions and so very few answers. Chief among them, where was Shirley? Her mysterious absence was cause for a lot of speculation in the early days of the investigation. I mean, even at 87 years old, they had to look at Shirley as a potential suspect. And as Sheriff Sills mentioned earlier, the Dermans were still active and appeared younger than they were. Was it possible that Shirley had murdered her husband and fled out into the woods? A more likely scenario based on the real-time information coming in was that she'd been kidnapped. They were an affluent couple, and as they waited for a ransom demand in those early hours, Sheriff Sills wasted no time bringing in cadaver dogs who tracked the Yoconi forest which surrounded the couple's home, and divers searched the lake in the area behind the couple's home. Lake Oconee is actually a deep reservoir that has 374 miles of shoreline with a surface area of almost 20,000 acres. It would have been impossible to search the entire lake. The FBI was also called in to assist. A reward was offered, and every electronic billboard in the state practically had Shirley's picture on it. Asking the public for information, had anyone seen the 87-year-old? And still, no trace of Shirley, and no ransom demand came through. Meantime, investigators scoured every bit of evidence they did have. In an interview, Sheriff Sills would say that evidence found around the body of Russell Dermond, including two towels that belonged to the Dermonds, were of value to their investigation. He said cryptically that there was other evidence found at the scene, but he couldn't go into any of that evidence. 
Sheriff Sills would also say that Russell Derman's head was severed by a very sharp instrument, but a knife was not left behind, and there weren't any knives missing from the Derman household. Another bizarre twist in the case was revealed by the crime lab when they found gunshot residue on Russell's shirt. So some folks theorized that if he was shot in the face or the head and the bullet did not exit, that somebody took it so that they would not have that evidence. I find that odd for a lot of reasons. If it's a stranger, I don't know why you would go to that extent because you're leaving other evidence when you do that. So I trade thing for another. That's what I was going to ask you about because yeah. it seems like, and not to be casual about it, but a lot of work when you could just throw the gun away, right? Correct. And again, I want to warn you here, Mac will be going into some gruesome descriptions, which will help explain the thought process of law enforcement as they tried to puzzle out the motivation of the killer or killers. Now remember, Mac is a forensic specialist. To cut somebody's head off, don't take nothing. It sounds horrific, and it is. It sounds brutal and twisted and sickening, and it is. As far as the time that it takes, if you have the right instrument, it's quick. And I mean real quick. All right? Mm -hmm. So whatever happened to Russell, if you shot him in the face and then cut his head off, that in and of itself is second, not minutes. What they did after shooting him is where, to me, their mindset comes into play. So you're going to go and enter the home to get towels, to make this barrier. Then you're going to take his head somehow. Now, keep in mind, there was no blood dripping all the way down the driveway. There was no blood where they ran through the house. So there was no fingerprints and no DNA that was unknown that was found inside that house. So that, to me, means the head must have been placed in something. I don't know whether they took something from the home or brought something with them. So let's just say there's some type of leather plastic bag or a cooler. I have no idea. That would be one of those things if you were to ask me about my in-law's house. Would I know a cooler was missing? No, not like a small type cooler or um, some overnight bag. I probably wouldn't ever know that was missing. So sometimes when people say nothing was missing from the home, Maybe not, but it could have been so irrelevant that you would never look for that. So let's get to the motive. You have a very wealthy elderly couple. Were they the victims of a home invasion robbery or kidnapping gone wrong? The high-end jewelry was there. The artwork was there. The china, the silver, you know, the crystal, all that sort of stuff was there that is expensive, like a Rolex watch. So it leads you to think burglary was not the motive. Sheriff Sills says that he believes that the motive for the murders was robbery. But why wouldn't they take anything? That if you were going to rob a home, this one wouldn't be the one that you would necessarily... But you would also rob it if you were going to do it. There's no evidence that it was robbed. Unless they had something there that their children didn't know about or haven't told us. And how is it possible that no one saw or heard anything? I mean, the reality is, is that when you live on a lake, even though the homes are spread apart, sound travels over water. You know, if somebody's even playing a small radio across the water, you can hear it. 
you know, so if there was a bunch of screaming and, you know, gunshots, it would venture to bet that somebody would have heard something. What about inheritance? Was it someone close to the couple? Sheriff Howard Sills mentioned the Dermans' adult children. Was there something there? Could that be the motive? The couple's bank records were scoured for clues. Their wills were scrutinized. Their phone records were examined. The Dermans' three adult children were separately given polygraph tests. And I'm pretty confident of the polygraphs, ma'am. The FBI did two of them. My own polygraphist did one of them. I watched, actually watched these polygraphs. They were not done here. They were done in the cities where the, these people live. And there was no indication of, that I saw. Of, I, I, you know, I've watched a lot of polygraphs. They didn't, and they didn't know I was even watching the polygraph when it was going on. They had no idea I was even there. The estate, while it was not a huge, it was nothing. The house didn't sell for what it would have sold for. You know what I'm saying? It had a stigma attached to it. So they didn't have some huge $10 million life insurance policy? Oh, Lord, no. Not, no, not at all. Nothing close to that. According to Sheriff Sills, the Dermans' adult children all passed their polygraph tests. Earlier in the podcast, I said that the Germans had four children. Tragically, the Germans' eldest son had been murdered in 2000 while attempting to buy crack cocaine in Atlanta. Of course, they wondered, were their deaths connected? Yeah, that was clearly, from what everybody in law enforcement said, was a drug deal that went bad. I mean, he suffered with addiction, and he tried to buy some drugs, and they were robbed. And for whatever reason, the person decided to shoot him, and he died. But it was nothing connected to the parents at all. During the days after Russell's body was discovered, investigators interviewed hundreds of people, and nothing was coming to the surface as to why Russell had been murdered or explain where Shirley had disappeared. In fact, her vanishing without a trace just added to the muddiness of the case. More after a word from our sponsors. So at this point, they're thinking... Has she been kidnapped? Is she injured? And maybe in the head, did she walk away? Is she in the woods somewhere? Disoriented or hurt real bad. And then some people even said, was she in on it? So there was a lot of theories. When you have a case where it is so unlike the person, like Shirley would not hurt Russell. She would not harm herself. Yet, where is she? So there's no clothing in the yard. There's no blood anywhere. Uh, Her cell phone, her keys, her purse, everything's left at the house. They weren't robbed. So what happened? Did she accidentally shoot Russell? Did she freak out? Did she try to clean up the crime scene? When you're working these cases, you've got evidence, and you want to try really hard to let the evidence tell you what happened. But come on, we're human, and you see these things that are so rare. You You don't work up ahead every week every year, every five years. So that's going to throw you off. And then again, where is Shirley? So some people automatically, because they can't help it, was she involved or was she kidnapped or was she hurt? And is she in the woods somewhere? Um, Because if they beat her in the head or shot her, she might could have got away somehow, you know, while they were dismembering Russell. There's all these theories. And the children are telling Law enforcement, these are church-going, straight-era, middle-of-the-road, 
good, solid people that have never hurt anybody, never had an issue with anybody. They've been retired for years. So I know one theory was, did they have a disgruntled employee that came back for revenge? Well, honey, they waited a long enough time to get that revenge. I mean, they had been retired 20 years. Yeah. Nothing was making sense. Mac also breaks down the conversations and interviews that law enforcement were having with the people who were in and out of the Dermans' lives, up close and in the background. So a lot of times people that come to your home, you have no idea who they are. And maybe you hired them word of mouth or you saw, you know, a job they did for one of your friends and you're like, oh, I got to get that guy over here. You know, I love that deck or I love, you know, how he did this roof. So that's important. So here's thing it takes them you've got to look at the grandchildren you've got to look at neighbors you've got to look at business associates you've got to look at people that they employed who painted their house who fixed their roof who was their plumber who's their gardener who comes over here and you know sprays for bugs who are these people because the reality is when you hire people to do day labor or you hire people that have started their own business those folks don't have a background check. So if you shot four people 10 years ago and you want to start a landscaping company, you can do it. Nobody's going to look at your criminal history because you own the company. And you might be thinking, what about the security guard house? Surely there was CCTV footage of people coming and going throughout this gated community. But it didn't take long for investigators to find out that the security cameras were not working. They'd been knocked out at the guardhouse a couple of weeks before, during a storm. People felt so safe there, and I believe this is the first double homicide they've ever had. So again, it's so out of bounds. It is so unexpected that, you know, they didn't have anybody in the guardhouse. They didn't have operating cameras, and they just left the, the arm up and just, you know, come on in. It was sort of a goodwill policy. Residents would give contractors or service companies a decal to put on their vehicles. And as long as you had one of those decals, you pretty much came and went without notice. There weren't any records kept of those who were coming in and out of the Great Waters neighborhood. There really was no way to figure out if the killer or killers approached the Dermond home on land or by water. The Dermans didn't have security cameras installed inside or outside their home. And neither did their neighbors. And as I mentioned, there weren't any witnesses who came forward to say they saw or heard anything. It's like the killer was a ghost. And the million-dollar question remained, where was Shirley? And the answer to that question would come on May 16th, 10 days after Russell's body had been discovered. Two men were out fishing on Lake Oconee, roughly six miles from the Dermans' home, when they were faced with a gruesome discovery, a woman's body floating face down. Um, And I don't want to get gruesome, but in one of the interviews you'd said, you know, I I come back to the office and talk to me because I need to get the the stench of death off of me or something to the effect. Well, that was the day we recovered uh, Mrs. Dermans' body. Uh, it had been in the bottom of the lake for, I can't remember now, 10 or 15 days. And uh, I was assailed by uh, Atlanta TV reporters uh, that had uh, helicopters, you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, I'm, here I am pulling the body of this poor woman out of the lake, and 
uh, news helicopters, and I'm trying to cover that up. I, you know, you don't want, uh, I, I, you know, I didn't want the family or anybody to see that, you know. And and I had to reach, I actually had to reach over in the water and pull the body up against my body to get the body out of the lake. And so I literally was reeking with the stench of death. Now, you're the top law enforcement guy. Is Were you yes. there doing that? Because you wanted to be close, or because there's just you're shorthanded, or I mean that just seems no, really, really. That. That's normal here. That's a normal thing for me here. Shirley's ankles had been tethered to two thirty-pound cinder blocks that had been placed into synthetic-type nylon bags. These bags were tied to her ankles with parachute cording. And notice her floating, face down, and then everybody realizes, okay. She did not commit suicide because she was so distraught over Russell's death because she had been weighed down with cinder blocks, 30-pound cinder blocks. During autopsy, it was determined that Shirley had died from two or three deep wounds to her head from a blunt object. These skull fractures were consistent with being beaten to death with a hammer. To this day, Russell's head has never been found which is significant because without it, his cause of death is uncertain. Putnam County Sheriff Howard Sills has made it very clear in multiple interviews that he believes more than one person is involved here. He also believes that the gunshot residue found on Russell's collar makes it clear that he was most likely shot in the head and that he was decapitated because the perpetrator didn't want police to find the bullet, believing that it could be traced. At first, the murders appeared to be the work of professionals. Sheriff Sills has said that he initially assumed that the beheading was meant to send a message, but the FBI couldn't find any connections to the Dermans in any of their investigations that would indicate that their murders were some kind of payback for nefarious crimes. The couple had no known enemies. You know, the video camera system, at the ga- everything, that, <laughs> everything that could go wrong in this case did go wrong. You're talking about the cameras that... A storm knocked out, and so they didn't have any yeah, video. Yeah, they got the interest of the thing, and, and, and the, they didn't have their alarm system on. I mean, we pulled their bank records. There's nothing there. You know, <laughs> their tax returns. We photographed their children. We, you know, every, every, everything we touched with uh, seemed to go nowhere. That's what I mean. They had a handyman. We photographed him. They had a yard man. We photographed him. We, obviously, we know where their cell phones. You know, you know what I'm talking about. We we know where they were. <laughs> we know where the children were. And after finding Shirley's body, they had to ask themselves: Would professional killers take the risk of transporting her body? Their actions indicate that they didn't want it discovered. But disposing of her body in a public lake, weighing it down with just a pair of thirty-pound cinder blocks, they believe that a professional would have known that this method wouldn't work. And it's unlikely that professionals would decapitate a victim if it was a hit. After finding Shirley's body in the lake, it was clear that the killer or killers had to have left via the couple's home by boat. There was no way that they could dispose of her body without having a boat. But authorities found out that the couple didn't own a boat, even though they lived on the water and had a dock. Apparently, they had sold their boat sometime before the murders. I believe they had their own boat. Because there was no bo- boats that were stolen. Nobody 
said they had a boat stolen. Nobody said they found blood or rope or anything in their boat. Yep. The FBI's behavioral unit would put together a profile on the killer or killers. But in an interview in the Union Recorder, Sheriff Sills says he wasn't impressed with their findings. Quote, the bottom line of the profile that was worked up was that it was a male subject who probably liked guns and knives and things like that. Well, guess what? That's everybody in Georgia pretty much, certainly in middle Georgia. It's not that I don't appreciate the fact that the BAU looked at this case and gave us some good questions to ask when we formulated questions to ask people, but the profile just fits so many people, end quote. I mentioned in the beginning of the show that there were multiple crime scenes and that to this day they don't know how or where the murders took place. Obviously, one crime scene was the water where Mrs. German's body was recovered. Investigators do not believe that Shirley was murdered at home because of the nature of her injuries. Blunt force trauma to the head. She would have bled a lot from a head wound. There wasn't any physical evidence left behind at the German home to support that she'd been murdered there. But what clues can they glean from the water itself? The items like the cinder blocks, the nylon-type synthetic bag, and the rope used to tie the blocks to Mrs. German's ankles were potentially brought by the killer. So these items are of interest, and where Mac is trying to suggest some things to Sheriff Sills. Hide is important. We, we are creatures of habit. So usually the way you were taught to tie your shoes at four is how you still tie your shoes. If you were in the Boy Scouts and you were taught one specific knot, that's the knot you tie if you're working out in the yard somewhere. If you were in the service, those are the knots you tie. So if you were in the Army versus the Navy, you're going to tie a different knot. If you work in the uh, shipping industry and you're on a boat, you're going to tie knots a certain way. If you're a truck driver, there's a certain knot you might tie to make sure that, you know, your load is secure. So again, sometimes we tell on ourselves. So again, the knots are important. Another crime scene is the Dermond home where Russell's head was removed post-mortem. They believe he was shot in the head elsewhere because there wasn't any physical evidence like a shell casing or a bullet that had passed through his head or through a wall. And nobody on the lake heard a gunshot. The only evidence they have for certain is that Russell's head was severed in the garage based on the towel dams put in place. It would seem to keep the blood from leaking outside of the garage. But why? Were the killers planning on coming back? Sheriff Sills says that the only thing they could see that was moved in the house was a lamp that was placed on the trunk of one of their vehicles in the garage. So the lamp that you found on one of the vehicles that were in the garage without a shade. What what do you make of that? Well, well, it's actually quite simple what I make of that. Uh, that was used to illuminate the garage when they uh, decapitated Mr. Dermott. They took it out there and set the lamp on the trunk of the car and took the shade off to give them light in the garage, which tells, which, you know, you would first think that tells you it was nighttime, but garage didn't have a window on it, but with the blinds closed and the doors down, you'd still need a light to see what you're doing. So they would have needed that even during the day or in the morning time? Yes, yes, yeah. Because with the, it had many blinds, you know what I'm saying, solid yeah. mini aluminum type mini blinds on the one window that, I, well, it may be a double window, I don't remember right. Obviously, we have photographs, but, but uh, if you close those blinds with the garage door down, it was a solid garage door no, you know, with no windows on it. You, you couldn't see in there. So do you think that they, they must have been wearing gloves then? Because I'm sure that that lamp 
was there dusted. Was the, yeah, the, there was an indication that on the lamp that they were wearing gloves yesterday. And you think, saying they, that there were more than, and you've said this in interviews oh, before, yeah. there was more than um, one person. I mean, is it absolutely impossible? No. You, you know what I'm saying? But you, you're talking about picking up bodies and putting them in boats and things. Well, that's highly unlikely one person did okay. that. Yeah. And the way in which Shirley and Russell were murdered is a clue in and of itself. It might indicate that there were two separate murderers based on the fact that Russell is believed to have been shot while Shirley was beaten to death with a blunt object consistent with a hammer. And, and, and terrible amount of misinformation that people, you know, we had people right after this tell us that the, the Germans had testified at a parole hearing and, 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 all, and this, that did not happen at all. And they were in, and and their kids have been cleared. I mean, it just feels like, you know, if they didn't have any enemies. Not not that we know of. And that nothing appears to be stolen. Nothing is in the house was in disarray. Uh, His body's there at the house. Her body is by water a good five to six miles away. Whoever disposed of her body did so thinking it would never be discovered. And that's what makes you feel like they weren't professionals because a professional would know. A prof- listen, a professional killer is going to walk in your house and shoot you in the head with a twenty-two Magnum pistol and walk away. They're not going to beat you to death with a hammer, put you in a boat, and carry you out in the middle of the lake and tie a 30-pound concrete block to your ankles that's not going to keep your body down. Whoever whoever killed Ms. Durbin did so with violence. She was struck two to three times with something, some sort of blunt instrument like a hammer that penetrated her skull. That's somebody with some animosity. Feet were bound with the uh, cinder blocks, feet, right? She was dead. She she was dead before. I mean, she was the blows to her head killed her. Not she. She did not drown. And you don't think she was killed in the home? Do you think that she was taken to the boat? That they had? Well, she had to be taken to a boat. But like walking on her own? I have no idea, man. Okay. No way to know that. The fact that there's evidence that the killer or killers had gloves on could indicate that they were very prepared for this bizarre double murder. Everything matters because I don't believe that somebody came along and said, hey, I think I'm going to steal this boat and drive it to a house that I've never been to and kill two people. They were prepared. They had a firearm. They had rope. They had cinder blocks. They had some type of cutting instrument. I mean, there's just no way that was on the fly. This was on purpose. This was targeted. And again, it's just my theory, and I could be absolutely incorrect, but I think Shirley was the target of whatever the aggression was for whatever reason. Either she told somebody, we're not going to hire you anymore. We're not going to give you any more money. If it was a family member that, you know, was wanting money, and she said, Russell, don't give them no more money. I don't know what happened. I have no idea. Um, But I do know, I think, for sure, well, I'll just say it this way. I know for a fact that Sheriff Seals is going to look at every single line, every single phone number, every single name, every single address, and he's going to whittle that thing down to a, a fine list of folks that he can follow up with. And hopefully one of these private labs will give him an answer as well. 
So you are hopeful that this will be solved? Oh, I'm always hopeful. Absolutely. Listen, they were 88. I don't know how old the assailant was, but there are people that want to get right with God before they die. I don't ever discount a confession, deathbed or otherwise. It happens. It absolutely happens. I also just, you know, don't discount somebody that's in a relationship and ran their mouth and now that relationship ain't no good. I love me an ex-wife, honey. She, she going to tell it. And she'll even tell stuff we don't even want to know about. But she's going to tell it. You cheat on your taxes. You cheat on me. You cheat on everything. You know, she'll just tell stuff. Um, so, you know, you don't ever take that away. And you don't ever take away somebody getting arrested for something else. And while they're in jail, wanting their street cred and they run their mouth. And then they tell somebody that calls the DA that says, hey, I want to make a deal. If you'll give me less time on my cocaine charge, I'll tell you who killed that elderly, elderly couple on Lake Oconee. So I always have hope because I've seen every single one of those examples happen. But there is some good news in the case. With the passage of time, old evidence from the time of the murders in 2014 is new again in 2022. Apparently, Sheriff Sills is working with the FBI on new technology to analyze cell phone use in the area that wasn't available at the time of the murders. And he's opening up the entire case for new forensic testing. The record, the the stuff that you sent to the FBI and, and having all the cell data for, like, the area. We're still looking. We're still looking at that. And right now I'm intending to take the evidence I have to another private laboratory uh, that's had some somewhat remarkable success uh, in DNA work. I, I have not done that. The, is that what the towels and what Cheryl McCollum was, was suggesting? Uh, or is it something else? No, it's, it's something I don't know what I'm going to have them test. I'm going to meet with them and give them a whole overview of the entire case. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Say, okay, this is what we got. What of this do you think might have something on it or in it? And whatever that is, we're going to get them to test it. Well, that would be amazing. I mean, it just seems like there's got to be something, you know, and now well, with the advancements... Right, and there, there, there's been, there have been many advancements since the last eight years. And of course, there's always the old-fashioned waiting game of someone coming forward with information that will ultimately solve this case. But Max says, until then, in her mind, no one is cleared. Well, I think the only thing I, I will say again, and, you know, Sheriff Seals, I've, I've come to know him through this case, and, you know, he... Again, I want everybody to know the depths that he's gone to. I mean, he's looked at their, you know, their wills, their bank records, their cell phones, the tower pings. He went through their safety deposit boxes. He polygraphed their children. So this is not a man that is not working in every way that he can to solve this thing. And, and they've, they've totally cleared all the kids. Well, you know, here's my answer for that. This is not Sheriff Seal's answer. This is mine. Nobody's clear until we know who did it. Did they pass the polygraphs? Absolutely. But again, this case, you keep looking at everybody. Everybody. And I think the children are of the understanding that you have to look at their money. You have to look at us. You have to do these things. So do it in an 
effort to find out who did this horrible thing to our parents. Um, but yeah, I mean, nobody's, nobody's on the table. Which is why Sheriff Sills is calling on anyone with credible information about the double homicide of Russell and Shirley Dermond to come forward. Well, what has surprised me the most is the absolutely, absolute zero leads of anything. I mean, we had a significant award. We didn't get any calls. We, we can't understand what the motive could have been. I've never had a case like this where everything was a dead end, you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's, uh, that's what's so surprising, the lack of information uh, that we've been able to root out. And, and we worked on this thing nonstop. Basically, almost every, all of my personnel did for almost, you know, three months. <laughs> and it, it, it's, that, that is the most surprising thing, is the, the zero. Nobody calls, nobody tells us anything. We get calls, man, I'm not saying that. We've got hundreds upon hundreds of calls, but we don't get anything viable at all. And the few things that did appear to be viable quickly ran to, you know, a dead end. The number to call at the Putnam County Sheriff's Office is 706-485-3014. And as always, thank you for listening. The Murder Chronicles is a Cavalry Audio production recorded live in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We're produced by Brandon Morgan and myself. Our executive producers are Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. Josh Windish edited and mixed this episode. Music by Soundstripe. For Cavalry Audio, I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host. Thanks for listening. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.